This is Earl Fontenelle. You are listening to The Schweb, and we are speaking today about a fascinating text from antiquity, commonly known as the Mitras Liturgie, with Radcliffe G. Edmonds, Paul Shorey, Professor of Greek and Chair of the Department of Greek, Latin, and Classical Studies at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania. Radcliffe, thank you so much for coming on The Schweb. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm always delighted to talk about the Mithras Liturgy. Let's talk about the Mithras Liturgy. It's a fascinating subject. What is this text? Well, it's it's a recipe. And that's one of the, the peculiar things about it. It's not a freestanding document. It's one recipe in the midst of a large collection of, of recipes in what is commonly known as number four of the Greek magical papyri, uh, which is a codex of like 36 pages that was found under uncertain circumstances somewhere in Egypt, probably dates to around the fourth century CE. But trying to figure out the dating is deeply problematic. Um, there's a whole fascinating backstory about the finding of the Greek magical papyri, but I think you've you've already gone through some of that. So yeah. the the tale of Anastasi and his 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 illicit dealings, but but this recipe um, that Albrecht Dietrich called Mithras Liturgy is in the midst of this long collection of recipes and marked off. Uh, as many of the recipes are within the text as a unit, but uh, is very unusual, even within this collection of other recipes that pertain to divination, to erotic magic, to upping your business game, all sorts of of other kinds of uses. Um, But this one says that it is a, a recipe for immortalization, apathanatismos. And so it has immediately drawn, I mean, it, it drawn scrutiny as a, as a very unusual beast, even within the, that most unusual collection of texts. So we won't even get into the the multiple layers of probable redaction. This this text is obviously the end result of a long, convoluted yeah. process of evolution. For more on that, you can see the preface to Betz's recent edition, of the text or many other good scholarly resources, which we are citing in the bibliography to this episode. But one thing that is intriguing to me is that it's inserted. It's a very long text and it's Mm -hmm. inserted into another text, clearly just chunked right into the middle of a number of Homeric quotations, Mm -hmm. which are kind of set aside as little magical prescription. So cite, you know, recite these lines of Homer uh, to control your anger and recite these lines of Homer to gain mm-hmm. friends and this sort of thing. So you have some of those at the beginning. And then after the Mitras liturgy is all over, you have those again at the end. Sure. Right. And presumably that was a function of the redaction, right? That these were put in. But what generation of the redaction is very unclear. Um, yeah. You know, the the principles of trying to figure out what gets placed where in this document is very unclear. I think that one can make a sort of rough distinction between the begin the the sort of first half of the papyrus, which many, not all, but many of the bells seem to involve um, invocations to a solar deity. Whereas towards the end, you get a series that invoke a, a lunar goddess. And then there's sort of a miscellaneous section at the end. So it's really not not clear cut. But one way of thinking about the logic of the placement of the Mithras liturgy is to think of it as a solar focused spell and that whoever was compiling this saw other things that invoked the sun and said, "Okay, let's put this in. Let's put this in here. Okay. well, that leads to um, the question of how Mithraic is this thing? And, uh, you know, if it is Mithraic, how is it Mithraic? To contextualize that, the reason we call it the Mithras Liturgy is that this scholar Dieterich in 1903 published a book, Eine Mithras Liturgy, and it was a, a deep scholarly study of this text. 
And his idea is that there are these mysteries, the Mithraic mysteries, this religion that we have mostly iconography for interpreting with a few kind of problematic literary sources. Here's another literary source. This text is a ritual from the mysteries of Mithras. Cumont influential or, you know, famously kind of responded, it's neither a liturgy nor is it Mithraic. And while most scholars agree that I think it's safe to say that it, it, this isn't just some kind of transcript of a ritual from a yeah. Mithraeum. That doesn't mean we can say it's not Mithraic in some way. So yeah. what do you say to all this? What is your take I on mean, this? Uh, it's, it's certainly not a liturgy in the sense of a sort of public you know, ceremony or even a communal ceremony. It's very clearly limited to one practitioner and possibly a simustace who can be brought along, right? But it's a very it's a it's a very personal kind of ritual. How Mithraic it is is much fuzzier. I think the very fact that the supreme god of this spell, in contrast to all of the other ones in the the various papyri of the Greek magical papyri collection, is Mithras rather than any other name. I think that alone indicates that there is some Mithraic component to it, right? We get a lot of other names. The favorite, the most popular name for the supreme deity in PGM4 and in, in the others is in fact Yao, the Greek Yahweh, right? I mean, yeah. if you want a name for the supreme god, that's usually the one, but not in this text. In this text, we don't get a name, but the iconography is so clearly... Mithras, yeah, that you know, no other god wears pants, right? Yeah. No other god wears <laughs> trousers. That just it's just a clear mark, and then the cap and the other stuff. So, the fact that the 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 aim of it is Mithras, I think, qualifies it in some sense as Mithraic. But then there are a series of other sort of elements that seem to chime with the evidence we have for Mithraic iconography. And also with that, you, you said there's some problematic literary sources. Yeah, I mean, and the, the biggest one is, of course, Porphyry's Cave of the Nymphs, which is so thoroughly and explicitly a platonic allegory yeah. that Turkan and others have said, no, you have to throw it entirely out. But... I think Porphyry knew what he was talking about when he's citing information from the Mithraic mysteries, just as he knows what he's talking about when he's citing Genesis, which he also does in the same text. Yeah. I wonder, uh, I wonder if um, Plutarch's On Isis and Osiris isn't an instructive parallel. He, yeah. he actually gives us our best account of that myth, even including all the Egyptian material we have. He fills which in, is a little terrifying, but... Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but he fills in a ton of gaps. Yeah. Incidentally, that might lead us back to, at some point in the conversation, something we talked about earlier before we started recording, which is the tendency of ancient religious sources not to write down the important stuff. Yeah. Either yeah. because it's not right to write it down or because it's just obvious to everyone. So, if, you know, of course you don't need to write down the myth of Osiris and Isis from beginning to end because it's a story that we all tell each other, whatever. So we have this account uh, by Plutarch which is a beautiful account of the, the one version of the myth, but also tons of Platonist philosophical allegory interpretation mm -hmm. laid on top. And it's, it's not that difficult to see which strand is which, right? Right. But it's I think the same is true with Porphyry, right? right? We can see, okay, he is looking at this element of Mithraic cult and saying, I can interpret this allegorically to fit with the model that I'm doing. And we can say, okay, there was this element <laughs> of cult. The problem, though, is that the, is the question of how much of the understanding of what is going on with the soul that Porphyry reads into it was also part of the sort of common cur currency that may well have been part of Mithraism as well, right? The descent of the soul into matter, the ascent of the soul out of matter, right? This was hardly unique to Platonism in the imperial period. It may very well have been part of Mithraism as well. It's certainly part of the Mithras liturgy. Yeah. And so that's the question is like, how much of that is part of Mithraic 
ideology. And then you have to think, okay, well, who are the, the people celebrating the Mithraic mysteries in the Mithraea? They're Roman centurions, right? They're Roman soldiers throughout. How much are they going to be interested in some of this? Right. And I suppose the answer is, well, as much as the average Christian congregation member is interested in the dispute between homoousia and homoousia, right? It's still there. It's somehow informing what's going on, but most people don't care about it, yeah. right? It's it's sort of there. That's a helpful way of looking at it. It's a helpful caution. You know, you can have a religion that has incredible complex depths of theoretical theology, let's say, behind it and cosmology available to the celebrants if they want to explore it. But we don't need to assume that everyone is exploring it. Like, um, And so most you, people won't be. Yeah. Right. I mean, the theologians be. will. And I mean, I think um, Roger Beck has made a point of this in talking about when he's talking about the sort of astrological components of Mithraism and, and star talk, as he calls it. Most of the people don't know or care about this sort of um, astrological, theological, cosmological level, but the people who are designing the Mithraea and probably do, or yeah. at least some of them. Yeah. So again, I think it's useful to do that. I think whoever composed this Mithras liturgy is taking bits from, you know, Mithraic ceremonies and weaving them into his own or her own kind of ritual, it's that kind of bricolage, which I think is very, very characteristic of particularly the rituals in the in the Greek magical papyri, where we see this sort of cultural borrowing from all sorts of sources. And somebody was putting it together to achieve the the, the end, which is this meeting with the Supreme God. And so the Supreme God gets to be here portrayed as Mithras. Okay, let's talk about the text. What's in it? What is this text? If you pick up the Mithras liturgy and start reading from page one, as it were, what do you what do you get? You get a lot of different things. I mean, and the the analogy. I always like to use the analogy of the cookbook when talking about the recipes in the the PGM because it helps you 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 sort of start with a little introductory section as cookbooks often have right this is a recipe i got this from my grandmother da, 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 right you start with this kind of introductory matter which is fascinating because it begins with a prayer hilathi moi be propitious to me pronoia and psuche who are two entities that appear nowhere else in the text, but are very familiar from Platonist circles, as I think Dylan calls them the feminine intermediary principles. And they, they tend to be the very positive, helpful, you know, feminine intermediary principles. But then it claims that this recipe for apothanatismos, for immortalization, is being passed down to an only child who is referred to as a daughter, which is fascinating. Yeah. And it was revealed expressly from the great god Mithras through his archangel. So you've got you've got the, the authorization from the, the god, you've got this process of transmission through an archangel, and you've got a human process of transmission of the parent-child model which, of course, is a, a well-known trope in, in these kind of things. Especially in Egypt, seemingly. Or maybe I'm wrong about that. But but certainly in the Hermetica, we get it all the it's time. Certainly in the Hermetica. And you get uh, it in alchemical Egyptian alchemical literature as well, where where the, the father figure addresses the child figure. And, um, you know, apparently this was kind of common in just Egyptian trade guilds more generally. Yeah. I mean, and I, I don't think it's just Egypt. I think, no. you know, the, the model of transmission from parent to child in all sorts of trade guilds, yeah. right? That's, you know, you pass on the, the craft secrets. And if you're casting a model of that, then you adopt that. I find the gender issue much more interesting, much more unusual. The fact that it is a, explicitly a daughter because that is one of the things that we find in these platonic theurgic circles 
is a, a surprising level of importance of, of women in those, those circles. And this transmission of father to daughter, and sometimes mother to, to son, of theurgical practices. I mean, we only get little glimpses of it in Eunapius and others, but it's it sticks out. Mm. One of the other circles in which there, again, there's a sort of surprising presence of female practitioners is in fact alchemy. And Zosimus of Panopolis is, oh, is you know, most often writing to Theosebea, oh, Gune, right, oh, woman, um, sometimes it's, it's called sister, but, you know, it's and his, it stands in huge contrast to, say, astrology, yeah. where there seem to be no women in that field, um, mm. which is which is kind of surprising in contrast. Yeah. Uh, Zosimus's teacher is also a woman. So he's like... He's, well, when he... Ta- I mean, he... He talks about Maria, yeah. even if she's not his direct teacher. Yeah, his his, his but, authority, his his prime authority is Maria yeah. the Jew. And so it's very clear that this is a practice that Zosimus sees as being both genders. Mm. Theurgy seems to be another one. Now, uh, we'll probably want to come back to your use of theurgy for this text. Yeah. Some specialists might already be jumping up and down in anger. What do you mean theurgy? <laughs> but But let's come back to that. So we have our introduction. We have our kind of what I kind of see as an esotericist intro saying this is secret knowledge. The, the presentation of this recipe is, is seen as like dicey. Like I shouldn't really be writing it down, but please let me do so because my daughter needs to read it, but we're going to be careful. It's not going to, you know, loose. Not for wide distribution. Right. So we have, except that it's been redacted. Multiple times, yeah. right? The, 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 whoever is pulling this together has got several copies of this with alternate readings that, that are being pulled together. So that's right. So, that tension always between keep this secret. Don't let anybody know, except that I'm publishing it. Yeah, um, exactly. Which is our, our favorite tension here at the Schwepp. So we have this beautiful intro. And then what happens? Beth says we have section two, which is like subdivided. And this is really where the action is in a way. Yeah. And he wants to see seven distinct scenes, which I feel is a reflex of trying to fit it in with the seven planetary spheres, which are so important within Mithraism. I don't, I don't really see those seven as the most important operative distinctions, but there is certainly a preliminary prayer before the ascent through the cosmic realm, which has the winds and the planetary deities. And that ends at the door of the sun. And then there is a realm beyond that. And there are different scenes. There are different sort of things that appear. But I think that the, those are the sort of main divisions. Yeah. And the first prayer is clearly really important because it's referred to again at the end. If it says, if you want to do a sumustase, then start with this prayer, the one that goes like this, right? And so it's like a little reminder, like, don't get confused. This is the, this is the one. And this, this is that, it's a very peculiar sort of first origin of my origin, first genesis of my genesis, right? The way I read this opening thing is, is a way of, replacing the mortal element of the practitioner with the immortal ones. And, you know, it's not quite so neat as, you know, air, fire, water, earth, but it's pretty close. Right. And again, since we mentioned Zosimus, thinking of of the way Zosimus talks about in his treatise on the letter Omega, talks about the formation of the body out of the four elements, the body is a prison in his case for the, you know, that's made by the archons. But it, this is, as it were, undoing each of those pieces, replacing the earthly element and the fiery element and the, you know, with the, the immortal version of it. Yeah. And after that's done, there's the breathing in of the sunlight, breathing in of the pneuma that enables... And it's sort of fun in English because the light 
causes lightning, um, <laughs> right? It's not as ni- nice in Greek, right? The 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 kufidzein, but yeah. the, the panelma. But 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 you do have this idea that the sunlight makes the body light and raises up. And to go back to the issue of theurgy, one of the reasons that I do connect this with theurgical practices is that the Emperor Julian uses very, very similar language, including the Kufidzein verb, to talk about how the sun rays lighten the theurgists for ascent. And, you know, this is, this is, I think, one of the sort of easy connections there. Yeah. Now, this strikes me as an extraordinary insight into ritual practice, like with the details, not elided, but actually in the text, because you really get a picture, like you're sitting alone in a room. Okay, maybe you have a fellow practitioner in, in, in a version, but let's say you're alone. You close your eyes and you breathe in the rays of the sun. Like, I just think of well-attested yogic practices, well-attested mm-hmm. um, tantric practices, where the, the control of the breath and concentration on the breath is, is part of what is used to induce yeah. altered states of consciousness. And that seems to be what's going on here. It's, it's pretty straightforward. Like, And then we think, okay, well, what about all these other ascent accounts that we have, like the um, the eighth reveals the ninth from Nag Hammadi and stuff, and like maybe there's a breathing element here as well. Seems perfectly plausible, if not provable. very plausible, right? I mean, and and I think that's one of the advantages. I mean, I think Gregory Shaw in particular was one of the first to sort of suggest the tantric um, and the the you know ritual practices where we can see. Again, we get explicit instructions right. in a way that the Greek tradition doesn't give us. And so that that can be illuminating. Uh, you know, there, all comparison always brings its dangers. But as a plausible sort of, of way, a model for thinking of how this works, yeah, I think that, that you know, the Mithras liturgy really does help us say, yeah, that, that, could, be, that could be what we're talking about here. So you breathe in the pneuma that comes on the rays of the sun and you start to become light and then you rise up mm-hmm. and then you encounter the various planetary deities mm-hmm. and the, there's some wokes magikai, aren't there, that you kind of have to invoke yeah. to, to kind of get sneak past them, basically. Right. Well, there's there's the the Sige formula yeah. where you say, shh, 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 hush, hush. And there is the the putting the finger to the mouth and going, which it really is, yeah. right? Um, but there's also what I, having been raised on, you know, Winnie the Pooh as a small child, think of as the I'm just a little black rain cloud yeah. um, sort of moment where you're like, I am just a wandering star going amongst you, right? Don't, you know, don't pay no attention to me. I'm just floating here because they're coming at him to attack him yeah just like the bees right um and you know it's the claim to that i belong here that it ultimately does it and then the sige formula and the prosumeri sort of protective amulet sort of serve to reinforce that but ultimately that's that's what the claim is i belong here don't mess with me i've got a right to be doing what i'm doing so that's yeah that's that's a fascinating sort of you know, and the the planets are not named. Yeah, they're not. They're no separate sort of stages that they go through. They're all rushing at the you know the the practitioner simultaneously, which it really does go. I think toward you know we have in in many um, so called Gnostic texts, not in that many, but in some, a very detailed seven yeah. layers. And in many later ascent accounts, right? And Poimandres also has yeah. the seven layers, and you got right? to deal with each one sequentially, and you can't. It, and that doesn't seem that important to our author. It's more like just this: the celestial region is a, a region you have to sneak across, and that's mm-hmm. when the good stuff starts. After that, yeah, when you get to the doors of the sun, yeah, that's yeah. that's where you're you're headed towards the sun, and that's the the sort of aim, and then you get the elaborate sort of address to Helios who is in the center of the world, but it's also the sort of the limit of that realm. Yeah. And, you know, he gets elaborate invocations, but he's the door guard, right? 
And so what he will do is open the doors if the proper things are said. Again, you know, the vocus magicae is a, as a sort of mode of authentication of yeah. saying, I have a right to be here. I have a right to tell you to open the doors. Mm. Um, and so what happens when the doors are open? Well, this is something I find fascinating. You don't go in. You, you stand on the threshold and you look into the world beyond the, the cosmos. And as, as I was saying before we started, I, I find this um, very reminiscent of the image in, in the Phaedrus, which, you know, to which I think this whole cosmological vision is, is, is indebted. I mean, uh, the influence of that is vast, but yeah. um, specifically in the Phaedrus, as the, the soul chariot is ascending up along the, the heavens, it can peak into the hypercosmic realm. Only the head of the charioteer can sort of poke itself out and look into the realm of true being of the beyond. There's a, a similar image in, in the Phaedo. When Socrates is talking about the sort of different levels of the earth, he compares humans looking into the higher realm to a fish sort of poking its head above water and seeing the marvelous sort of world beyond. But again, the fish can't live out of water. Right. It can only sort of maybe a flying fish leap out of water, see the, the realm above and then plunge back in. And that to me fits with the repeated insistence in the first prayer in particular, um, and then in the final encounter of this moment, just this day, just the, this present and pressing necessity, right? This immortalization takes place, but it's a very temporary process. Yeah. So the temporary immortalization that, as you, as you mentioned in one of your articles, which we cite in the bibliography to this episode, this strikes, may strike modern readers as an absurd contradiction, temporary immortalization. But our listeners... Um, who've been paying attention are already familiar with temporary encounters with eternity in Plotinus and, and indeed Philo of Alexandria. They're familiar with the divinization in some hermetic texts, mm -hmm. which also doesn't, well, the obtaining of an immortal body, whatever that means, the, the guy with the immortal body is still sat there in front of you in the room. It's not like he's, you know, sort of disappeared or, or he's not, he's not glowing or anything like that. He's just a normal dude, but something has changed that you can maybe see yeah. with the eye of the soul rather than your normal eyes. So this is the kind of thought world we have to get ourselves into a, a very different, I think, idea of bodies and souls and, and what it is to be a human being. This is why in, in, in that article, I talk about extreme purification, Yeah. right? Rather than rather than this being a permanent sort of initiation that leaves you forever at a different status yeah. instead of taking the classic Van Gennep, you know, you start in one status, you go through a weird experience and then you end up sort of brought back into society, but at a different level, yeah. whether that's as a married person or as an adult or a whatever it, whatever it is, this, you go back to being who you were before, right? I am a mortal, born of a mortal womb. You say that every time you do this. And then you replace your elements with the immortal ones. You go up. Um, and this, you know, I think that this process chimes with, as you say, the things in Plotinus and some of the Hermetica, certainly in some of the, in some of the other Platonists who are writing specifically about theurgy. Heracles says, it's not lawful for the impure to lay hold of the pure. Therefore, you have to become more pure. And there are rituals for that. Yeah. Now, Heracles, being a Neo-Pythagorean, neo thinks that mathematical practices are really key to this, um, which is not the way we tend to think of, you know, sort of purification as, as doing mathematics. But... Um, I know some mathematicians who think that that, yes, this yeah. is the purest form of, of thought. Yeah. So we find this very same, this uh, use of mathematics as a purificatory tool in the, uh, the Rasail of the Ikhwana Safa, the medieval um, 
Islamicate esotericism, and it has a long tradition after that. Fascinating. I had no, yeah. I had no idea. I mean, they're that. getting yeah. it somehow via Proclus, we think, like in, in some probably. transition or uh, some, some textual chain or other, probably via Syriac. We don't know. Right. But the, the idea seems to come from late Platonist sources, but it's, it's just stated in a very Procline terms in the Epistle on Mathematics. So what do we see when the doors are opened? The, the doors of the sun, the gates of the sun. There are these visions, right? And they're introduced with the upsay, you will see, yeah. which I think is a fascinating. Um, and so you get the, the pole of the universe yeah. that turns everything around. And then you get the vision of the seven asp-faced maidens and the seven bull-faced lords who are described as, I guess, personifications of the stars of the constellations of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the bears that turn the pole around. Yeah. I love how the author gives us a gloss for, for the Greek speakers. He says, um, you know, he describes these... Well, actually, he describes the what the god Mithras, what Helios Mithras, is holding, which is this golden yeah. bull shoulder, shoulder. of a bull. And yeah. then he says, that is to say, the bear which turns the cosmos. So Right. Because... That isn't straightforwardly obvious, but it's clearly important. And I think that's, and this is again something Beck noticed, that is something that clearly indicates that this is drawing on Mithraic elements. Because there are many Mithraic teroptony scenes, there's a sort of canonical set of images that go along the side in many of them. And one of them is called the investiture of soul where Mithras is standing with the shoulder of a bull in his hand and the sun is kneeling before him. Yeah. That, that sort of double parallel of the sun and Helios Mithras again suggests a Mithraic framework that's being used there. And the Supreme God holding the shoulder of the bull which is the bear is I think again an indication that there's an interplay between the between those with the tradition. Hmm. It's also interesting here that we see such an emphasis on the pole, which generally it seems to me in, in Greco Egyptian astral astrally religious material, let's say, tends to focus a lot on the the middle of the sky, the solar ecliptic and the planets hmm. and the zodiac. But here we have the a clear statement that the pole is key to the to the whole yeah. thing. Well, and it's I think it is connected specifically with the power of the bears um, because there are other invocations in other recipes in in PGM four and elsewhere. I think it's seven where there are invocations to the bear as the ruler of the pole, and you know these are all purpose spells because. The one that controls the rotation of the universe can control anything, right? Yeah. And so, you know, there that there's clearly an idea here of that importance of the pole and the the turning of the pole. Yeah. So in what does the apathanatismos consist? Is it the vision of the youthful god who appears? Again, he's not he's not named but he's described as a beautiful young man and it's clearly and he's wearing trousers he's clearly he's wearing trousers. trousers and he doesn't he come doesn't, out but you see him through the gates he sort of approaches you see him proceeding from the pole he comes up you're standing at the gate and you get a vision of him i think that the apathonatismos is not the vision of the god but the preparation for the vision of the god right you need to be immortalized to meet the immortals you know, in your mortal body, I mean, then there's there's language of this. My frail mortal body can't, you know, handle this. I need the immortalization. And once you've done that, then you can ascend to the place of the immortals and meet the Supreme God who, you know, gets a series of invocations. Again, you get this vision, there are lightning bolts and and the ground seems to be shaking despite the fact that you're nowhere near the ground, right? Yeah. So it's a very, a very sensory experience. There's the visual, there's the feeling, the tactile, there's the auditory thunder lightning kind of stuff going on. 
This is one of the things, again, that is reminiscent of Chaldean oracles. This sort of vision, you will see this, appears in some of the language of the Chaldean oracles as well. Well, uh, why don't you expand on that a little bit, as if you'd be so kind? You, you have a really interesting article um, called, Did the Mithraists Inhale? Question mark. Um, <laughs> Really, really. I wrote getting that into... back when when that was a, a more going phrase. Yeah, for future archaeologists trying to make sense of this, this is a reference to Bill Clinton, <laughs> the former U.S. president. <laughs> it, we're now we're now recording in an era when uh, it's all been legalized anyway in the U.S. But um, <laughs> you talk about the oracles, which, although they unfortunately do not preserve anything like a recipe, clearly have a programmatic ritual thing happening that kind of glimpses of it appear here and there. And it has something yeah. to do with ascent, right? And the Mithras liturgy. Now, one thing I'll just say off the bat, I think that I think I find very compelling is both worldviews seem to have a very roughly similar cosmology, which is not seven spheres importantly identified or anything like mm -hmm. that. It's very, it's quite simple. There's the sublunary world, although the moon doesn't get mentioned in the Mithras liturgy. Let's call it the sublunary world. The celestial realm, the realm where the planets are and stuff like that, and then a higher realm beyond, which in the yeah. Chaldean oracles is described as the Empyrean, the, the sort of fire world, but we also yeah. know it's a noetic world, so it's not your everyday garden fire, it's noetic fire, whatever right. that means. And in the Mithras liturgy, you have this higher realm where Helios Mithras hangs out. What else is comparatively intriguing about these texts? Well, I do think the the imagery of ascent through sun, you know, the 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 sun ray imagery, the Chaldean oracles have a lot of the fire imagery. Yeah. It's, and the light comes streaming down from the father, which provides a channel to go up, you know, and lightening the soul to rise. There's even reference to inhaling to drive out the soul from the body. So I think there there clearly are a lot of pieces that that go together. One of the the sort of historiographic problems that we have, I think, in trying to figure out what's going on in the Chaldean oracles, is the brilliant work of of Lewy, right? His Chaldean oracles and theurgy, which is his you know, massive reconstruction of the rituals behind the Chaldean oracles. The problem is, is that he used the Mithras liturgy to fill in the gaps. Yep. Right. And so when we use the Chaldean oracles to, to sort of connect the Mithras liturgy, we're, we run the danger of circularity. Yeah. I think he was onto something, right? I mean, I think that, that it was not a, it was not a, a sort of random or arbitrary choice, but we have to be careful of what the limits are. Yeah. And I do think that one of the, the differences is precisely in the role of the, the feminine intermediary principles, right? Where in the oracles, as far as we can see the texts, Hecate seems to be a very important figure. Yes. And Hecate in a sort of lunar aspect, which she is very commonly found. And, and Sarah Johnston's book still is, I think, you know, the best best treatment of, of all of that. The importance of Hecate in the theurgic, in the Chaldean tradition, and even, you know, Marinus tells us that, um, that Proclus evoked the luminous apparition of Hecate, right? So that, there seems to be a role there. In the system of the, the Mithras liturgy, as you remarked, the moon isn't there. Yeah. It's a sublunary world, but there's no moon. All of the, the practices need to be done at the new moon, when the moon is absent, at the seizure of the moon is the wonderful sort of uh, expression that's used there. And so that, I think, bespeaks a slightly different perspective yeah. on theological perspective on, on this intermediary figure. You get pranoia, you get psuche, you don't get hecate, you don't get the moon in other parts of the papyri you get the moon yeah you get the moon invoked as hecate but also as persephone as actiophis who where that figure comes from is quite a mystery 
And then Eresh Gagal, whose pedigree we know, but what she's doing here is hugely surprising. But she appears in this in this papyrus. So they're very negative, very hostile, you know, is a very dangerous figure. And, and there are lots of warnings of how you have to be careful. Um, my favorite one is in PGM, what is it, 2441 following. There's a, a warning that says, don't perform this invocation unless you're protected by the amulet. Because the goddess is accustomed to make airborne and hurl down from aloft those who perform the charm without the, the you know without the protection. Like this is a dangerous stuff. You don't mess with her. So her absence from this ritual is, I think, quite striking. Yeah. And I think marks a difference from the Chaldean oracle system and some of the later Platonist material as well. Yeah, the Chaldean oracles is. It is its own thought world that's not doesn't quite map onto anything else that we have. <laughs> and particularly because all we have is various Platonists taking pieces of it yeah. for their own purposes. Yeah. So yeah. What what I find interesting, and I wonder what you think of this. Another thing you have in the Chaldean Oracles that you don't have in the um Mitras Lejogi is in the Chaldean Oracles, I mean it being let's say much more Platonistic, easily identifiably Platonistic in its metaphysics. You're, the soul is leaving the body. The body doesn't really play a role. In this Egyptian piece, this uh, this um, Mithras liturgy, the the body needs to be purified, and the body seemingly is maybe making the journey, like this this sort of transformed immortal body. Um, yeah. At least it doesn't say that that's not what's happening, and that's very different. That reminds me of Christian Bull's interpretation of the Hermetica, mm-hmm. wherein Corpus Hermeticum thirteen, which is another. Apathanatismos ritual described where you gain an immortal body he -hmm. sees that as a preparatory stage for the ritual described in the Ennead reveals the Ogdoad where Mm -hmm. then you sort of ascend to the highest sphere and 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 get get onto the divine home turf and that's a tempting um it's tempting to read that reading of the hermetica and use this um, mm-hmm. Egyptian text that we're talking about as supporting comparative evidence. That yeah, seems no, I mean, I, I think that, that you're quite right to, to sort of point to that difference in the Platonic tradition. There is this image of the soul chariot, right? That, that gets reworked in various ways. It's a luminous vehicle or yeah. it's that, right? It's not a new body. Whereas in the Hermetic material, um, and also in 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 some of the Gnostic material, right? There is this sort of recreating of a of a luminous body that, in some ways, belongs in the pleroma, that belongs in the heavenly realm, belongs in the the Ennead, right? Rather than than this world, and that's a that's a different approach to the body. I think so. I think so. Um, I'd, I'd love to bring Christianity into the conversation here as well, because there's this whole. You know, in Christianity, from the the earliest texts, you have the idea that the body is going to be reborn. We're going to get new bodies. Yeah. In constant dialogue <laughs> with this Platonistic tendency to talk about the immortal soul, which is not a body, and God is not a body, and none of it is corporeal. And right. You know, a lot of these, like like um, Augustine says, you know, when he learned the doctrine of the um, the incarnation of Jesus into a body, he thought it was turpe. It was like disgusting because he was educated <laughs> yeah. from this like Platonist perspective, right? He's like, oh, are you kidding me? God and a body? But there's this understanding Worst of... impossible. Yeah. <laughs> but th- th- there's this other current in these late antique religious <sighs> traditions of bodies. You don't leave them behind. You just transform them. And maybe that brings us to alchemy as well in a different kind of context. And I, I mean, I think it does. I, I mean, and that's that's where I think some of the similarities with Zosimus are instructive yeah. um, in terms of the purification of the elements of the body as an alchemical kind of uh, process. Exactly how Zosimus thinks he's doing that is, as with so many things with Zosimus, rather obscure. Yes. But, <laughs> you know, it the body becomes spiritual in some way through being through images in some of his visions of being chopped up or flayed or burned or boiled right which are 
very alchemical kind of processes, but what is the body that's being transformed? Another topic, but but it's it's the world of Zosimus is, I think, in some ways closer to the world of the Mithras liturgy than the world of Plotinus or the world of Plato. You know, there there is a different perspective going on here. Hmm. And um, I also see a lot of parallels with the world of some of the Hermetica in the Corpus Hermeticum and the Stobias Hermetica. Not all, though, by, yeah. by no means, you know, very much the, more, the, the ones that Festugier would call the Stoicizing um, Hermetica, uh-huh. the, ones that, the ones that in which God is in the world and the world is sort of divine, and, but there's still, there's still scope for further divinization and possibly ascent to higher realms. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, and, you know, I mean, the Hermetica, like the Greek magical papyri, are a, an artificial corpus. Yeah. Right. That's that we as modern scholars have sort of put together. They're drawing on s- traditions. And I think many of the traditions that they're working with are similar, but even more so the pieces that they're putting together, they're drawing from the same pool. And some of them are putting them together in very similar ways. Some of them are making different choices, but they're still operating within the same set of elements, I think. Yeah. Is God in the world? Is God beyond the world? Right? Is it totally transcendent? Is it totally imminent? Is it somewhere in between? Where is the soul? Is it fully descended? Is it partially descended? Is it, you know, all of those, those options. The one thing, I mean, we've talked about the immortalization, but one thing that is often, I think, sort of shunted to the side is what was the purpose of the ritual? The immortalization I see as the step towards the end, which is the meeting with the God, but the meeting with the God is not an end in itself. It is for obtaining a revelation. And this is where the context of the other recipes in the papyri, and this papyrus and others, are, are helpful is like this was something that people wanted to do. This is why they wanted to do that. And there's a very explicit, you will receive uh, an oracle in verse and it will be so great that you will be able to remember it no matter how long it is. It's that striking. And so in some sense, and this again, I think connects us with the Chaldean oracles. The point of the ritual is to receive an oracle. Yeah. Examiner oracle just like the Chaldean oracles. And so that raises questions about, you know, and this is where the fragmentary nature of the, of the Chaldean oracles is so frustrating. Like, were these revelations received in contact with Hecate? Possibly. You just can't be sure. But for the Mithras liturgy, it's very definite. That's what you're trying to do. Mm. You're trying to connect with the gods so that he can give a revelation. Lowy and others, you know, looking at, look and Dietrich and all of those who are looking for a sort of religious tradition that grounds the Mithras liturgy, whether it's Mithraism or Chaldean theurgy or whatever, are trying to see what seems to be an authentically religious goal, which is just union with God, right? But the, the text reminds us that that's, that's not what the aim is. The aim is to get the revelation, and you can do it again, and you can do it again whenever you need it, and that there are practical purposes for which this can be put. Now, some of those might be very legitimate from a modern outside perspective. We say this is, you know, you want to know your future fate and you want to be able to avoid evil. You want to know how to purify yourself. You want to know how to make progress in philosophy. All of those things, Iamblichus says, theurgists only go for that kind of stuff. But, you know, I find a very instructive parallel in another of the Greek magical papyri, the so-called Eighth Book of Moses in PGM 13, where there is, again, you meet with the Supreme God, you purify yourself, you meet with the Supreme God, you get the divine name, but then there's a whole list of things you can do with it. 
all sorts of things from, you know, obtaining a woman to protection to my favorite crossing the Nile on a crocodile. Right. I mean, yeah. If you had ultimate power, what would you do? You'd cross the Nile on a crocodile. You look at that and then you look back at the Amblichus and you're like, he's protesting really hard. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he's being a high-minded Platonist philosopher. He's being with a high-minded morals. Platonist. Clearly there are people who did stuff that was very much like what he thinks he's doing that he feels the need to distance himself yeah. from. And I see no reason not to think that the Mithra, the composer of the Mithras liturgy was exactly that kind of somebody who thought that the purposes for which he was using this ritual were totally legitimate. But high minded person like Iamblichus might very well say, no, 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 that's not that's not legitimate. That's too earthly. But there is I mean, when we when we see what. Marinus tells us about Proclus. What does he do with his he, you know, we and the the various miracles we get attributed to the theurgists in Unapius and and stopping droughts, healing people, you know, standard, you know, grade miracles, good things for the community, preventing an earthquake, those kind of things. But that's not quite the same as a sort of absolutely pure, you know salvation of the soul by union with the one, um, which Iamblichus is sort of like, no, it's all about that. But then he's also talking about divination throughout yeah. the rest of the treatise. Mm. And, right? and if you look at his like life of Pythagoras, it's full of Pythagoras going around doing saintly stuff, you know, magical right. stuff to help communities and so on and so forth. So. Right. And, and ultimately it's the miraculous, these miracles, these thalmata that, are the product of this kind of revelation. How do you find out how to do this? How do you, you know, how do you do these things? How do you get the divine power? How do you channel that divine power to do things? And you can make a perfectly good Platonist argument for that, right? It's going back into the cave and helping the, the prisoners who are chained there. And for Plato, that's necessary. You got to go back. Mm. So... It is interesting to see the kinds of divisions that are made. We're far more pure than those people who do those sort of things. Always indicates that the lines are fuzzier than than our sources would want us to believe. Indeed. Radcliffe Edmonds the third. thank you so much for being on the Schwepp. A hugely interesting discussion of a very, very fascinating text. Thank you so much. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Stay esoteric. Thank you. I will. <laughs> <laughs>